you guessed where I was going to be. Somebody asked before the service if I was going to be in Luke today. I said, yeah, 20 <laughs> years from now, if you call me back, I'll probably still be in Luke. So, all right. We are in Luke, <clears throat> excuse me, 11 verses 14 through about 36. I'm not going to read all those right now. But from verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you as your people. We thank you for the opportunity to, to sing your praises and to gather together around your table. And we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. We pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would help us to focus on your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hands and feet to put into practice. And we'll give you the praise for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. That's not what I'm preaching on, though. That's, uh, <laughs> hmm, okay. Nope, that's not. There it is. How not to respond to Jesus. It's still coming. There we go. All right. I was, for a second, when I took my slides back there, we couldn't find them. And I was like, preach without PowerPoint? I don't know if I can do that. But I did it. I did, I did it for many years before I got hooked on it, so I don't know. But anyway, well, today, first of all, congratulations on a new building and a new pastor. Uh, and... May God bless your future. It's going to be exciting to see what God does. And I heard your new building's a little bit closer, so next time you call me over, we will only have to drive 50 minutes instead of 60, so that'll be good. Uh, but uh, we are excited, and I, I was especially excited when uh, our new pastor uh, emailed me and uh, told me that the man that you had called used to be his uh, spiritual formation advisor at Dallas Seminary. And so uh, there's already a connection between your church and our church. Uh, our pastors know each other, so that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, but today is time for confession. I must confess this morning one of my guilty pleasures. Hopefully you won't think too badly of me after I show you this. But every Tuesday I sit down and turn on America's Got Talent. <clears throat> Maybe it's because I've spent so many years doing chalk art in front of people. I'm always interested to see what, what people are doing and what uh, different you know, talents are out there. And, and I love to sing. I love music. I love art and all those different things. So, so I enjoy watching America's Got Talent. Again, forgive me if, if you don't, but uh, I've always had fun with it. And, and of all the different acts that are on, the ones that I enjoy most are the magicians. <clears throat> I love it when somebody gets up, and actually they call themselves illusionists now, which is probably a better term. 
But I love it when someone gets up and will perform some kind of illusion that you watch it and it just, it just kind of blows your mind. How in the world did he do that? Uh, been some amazing ones. That was one of the more interesting uh, fellows. I forget what his name is, but he was on earlier this season. Uh, just amazing to watch some of these illusions. But for me, it's not just watching the illusion. I want to figure out how they did it. Because, see, I know it is an illusion. That's why they call themselves illusionists. I know it's a trick. And so, you know, I used to scratch my head trying to figure out how some of these things were done. Now, thanks to the internet, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to expend too much uh, mental energy because within 24 hours of any airing of America's Got Talent, uh, there will be some YouTube video uh, explaining how the trick was done. And so I will watch that and say, oh, that's how they do it. I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, when I was a kid, my brother was into magic, and, and I had always wanted to do it, and that was one of the things I never got around to doing. But um, so I'm always interested, how did he do it? How did he do it? How did he do it? And uh, once I find out, then I, my second greatest joy is teasing my daughter, who also enjoys to watch, but she doesn't want to know how it was done. And I won't blow it for her. But I'll say, you know that guy on America's Got Talent yesterday that did the trick? I know how he did it. <laughs> and she'll say, don't, don't tell me, don't tell me. I won't tell you, but I know how he did it. <laughs> it's because I know it's a trick. I know it's not real. And I, I constantly get amazed when some of the judges who have probably seen everything in the book, oh, this must really be magic. I, I'm sure, still not sure if they're that dumb or if that's just scripted hype. But it's a trick. It's not real. In fact, some of them, you can tell if you watch close enough, have been helped along a little bit by the, the editors after the fact. And a little careful video editing has helped make the illusion even better. <coughs> Well, as we come on this scene with Jesus and his disciples, remember Jesus, beginning in chapter 9, began his long journey to Jerusalem, where he was going to, as Luke said, make his exodus. And as he heads to Jerusalem, we're picking up a subtle change in the reaction of the people. Jesus has been doing miracles for some time. And the reactions of the people have been amazed. But now as we see them moving in the direction of Jerusalem, as Jesus bears down toward the climax when he will go to the cross, there is a change in the reaction of the people. As a matter of fact, in this particular story, it's very interesting that Jesus performs a miracle. And earlier in the book, when Jesus performs a miracle, the emphasis is pretty much on the miracle itself and on what Jesus did and, and on you know, everything involved in the miracle. And, and the crowd reaction is almost secondary. Now, in this particular passage, 
the miracle is almost secondary, and it is the crowd reaction and Jesus' response to their reaction that is the focal point. In verse 14, we have the miracle. It's basically two sentences. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. Jesus had been driving, driving out a demon that was mute. Interesting, he doesn't, you know, Luke doesn't tell us where it was. Doesn't give us the city like he does in some cases. Doesn't give us much other context. It's just Jesus was somewhere and there was a crowd and he was driving out a demon that had caused a man to be mute. And when the demon left, the mute spoke. Now you can imagine, again, kind of fill in the blanks if you're the crowd. And this is somebody that you knew who had perhaps been mute for decades. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But when that demon left, the man spoke. And it says the crowd was amazed. That part is pretty much routine as we've seen through this gospel. But now we get some different reactions. In fact, we get three different reactions given to us by Luke. The first is slander. Verse 15, but some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. They look at this miracle, and it's interesting, you notice they don't try to refute it. They don't say, yeah, that's just a trick. They can't dispute it because here's a man who has been mute for who knows how long, who couldn't speak. Jesus casts out the demon and the man speaks. They have to respond somehow, but they don't believe. And so what do they do? They slander. They say, well, yeah, he cast that demon out. But it was by the prince of demons that he did it. Jesus cast out that demon by the power of Satan himself. So the first response was slander. The second response was skepticism. Some looked at it differently. It says, others tested him, verse 16, by asking for a sign from heaven. They said, okay, Jesus, you cast out a demon. And yeah, you've healed some people. And yeah, there was that thing of the feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrections. But what else can you do? They wanted a sign from heaven. Now, again, Luke doesn't fill in the blanks. He doesn't tell us what kind of sign from heaven they wanted. Perhaps they were looking for an Elijah kind of sign where Jesus calls fire down from heaven. Perhaps they were thinking more along the, the book of Daniel, where Daniel speaks of the Son of Man you know, being in the clouds of heaven. You see, they wanted to see more than just miracles. You know, I, you've been doing that for a couple of years now. It's getting kind of boring. Give us a real sign. It's kind of like over in the Gospel of John, where, where you know, the, the Pharisees, hey, 
if, if, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Like, really? After all this time, you haven't figured it out? So we have a response of skepticism. Yeah, you did that, but we really want a sign from heaven. We want something definitive. And then there's one other reaction. We have to skip down for that one. It's down in verse 27. I'm going to call that one superficiality. It says, as Jesus was saying these things in response to the other uh, challenges, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. So in the middle of Jesus refuting one challenge, somebody who's there who obviously wants to offer support says, Blessed is your mother. It's kind of like your mother must be really proud to have a son like you. And that was a very nice thing to say, particularly since the crowd evidently was at least somewhat hostile. But it was a superficial thing to say. It wasn't really a statement of faith. It wasn't really a statement of confidence. It was, you know, blessed is your mother, Jesus, I'm in your corner. So three, three responses, or three responses to, to what Jesus said. Slander, skepticism, and superficiality. And Jesus, in turn, responds to all three of those and then gives a challenge by means of a parable. Now, we don't have time to look at every single verse here. We're going to hit some highlights. But as Jesus responds to slander, look what he says. Verse 17. says, Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by Satan. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers, literally your sons, drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So Jesus lays down a challenge of his own. He says, I want you to think about something. First of all, understand that the kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan is divided against himself, he's working against his own interests by casting out demons. And then he throws out something that for years puzzled me. He says, now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? And I always wondered about that because that implies, well, and, and there were Jewish exor exorcists who cast out demons, apparently, or at least tried to. But that almost implies that there were others out there really effectively casting out demons. And, and to me, it seemed kind of unusual, almost contradictory. If, if Jesus is there, what about these other ones who are out there casting out demons? And then, as I did some reading, I found, you know, it's, it's, it's a minority opinion, but I think it has weight. That what Jesus is talking about is not the Jewish exorcists who are casting out demons. When he says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, 
then by whom do your sons cast them out? It's very possible he's talking about his own disciples that he has sent out among their family members, among their villages. Remember, he sent out the 12. He sent out the 70. And they were all empowered with authority to go out and heal and raise the dead and cast out demons. And right now, the attack has just been on Jesus. Hey, he's casting out demons by the, the, the prince of the demons. And yet, OK, if that's true, what about these 82 other people that I've sent out who are casting out demons, who are possibly some of your sons? By whom are they casting them out? And then he throws down another challenge. He says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God. In other words, if, you're, if you look at them and you say, well, gee, Cousin Joe is out there and he's casting out demons and he's part of Jesus' band. Maybe there is something to this. Maybe Jesus really is casting out demons. He says, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, don't miss that phrase. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know where that phrase comes from? You don't find it often in the scripture, but you'll find it in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 8. When Moses is standing before Pharaoh and he's, he's done some miracles, and remember what happens in that story where Moses casts down his staff, and what happens? Pharaoh calls in his magicians. And what do they do? They cast down their staffs. They turn into a snake, too. They imitate. They, I don't think, supernaturally do it. But they are able to use magicians' tricks to imitate the work of God. And then Moses brings up frogs, turns blood, you know, it does, does these different things. But there comes a point in Exodus 8 when Moses performs a miracle, brings up gnats, and Pharaoh's magicians try to imitate that one. And they can't do it. And they turn to Pharaoh and say, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. So Jesus says, if I, by the finger of God, am casting out demons, then the kingdom of God is among you. He's challenging them. He's saying, look at me. Look at what I am doing. Look at what your sons are doing. And you have a choice to make. If I am casting out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God is among you. So that was his first response. There's a lot more there. But we're not going to cover it today. Maybe next time. Now we go to the next response that Jesus makes, and that's to superficiality. As Jesus is making his response to the, the slander, an anonymous woman in the crowd who wants to support Jesus says, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and who nursed you. Jesus does not accept the flattery. Or the superficiality. What does he say? He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
So Jesus' response to superficiality is, yeah, you see the works that I'm doing, but just seeing the works that I'm doing is not enough. You need to hear God's word. And you need to take God's word to heart. And you need to embrace it. And you need to keep it. And then there's a third response, Jesus' response to skepticism. What about those who say, hey, we need the sign from heaven. We need to see you coming in the clouds of heaven. We need to see something dramatic, definitive that says, I am the Messiah. We need to see you coming in conquering power, throwing out the Romans, whatever. We need to see that kind of sign. Jesus says in verse 29, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now skip down to verse 32. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Now, it's interesting because Matthew also gives us this account. And Matthew's primary focus is the resurrection. He says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The emphasis is on the resurrection. Luke doesn't make that emphasis here. He doesn't allude to the resurrection. What does he allude to? The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. I think Luke wants us to focus in this passage on Jesus' preaching and his word. Jesus says, you are a skeptic. You want a sign. First of all, abundant signs have already been given if you had eyes to see them. The sign I'm giving you is the same sign that the men of Nineveh got. Yes, they got a resurrected Jonah, as it were, but the emphasis here is Jonah went and he preached. And the men of Nineveh responded. And Nineveh was, at least temporarily, saved. Now, Jesus ties it all together with a parable that really gets to the root of the problem. Verse 33, no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on his stand so that those who, may, who come in may see the light. Now again, it's very interesting that Luke puts a different spin on this passage than Matthew does. Matthew has this in the Sermon on the Mount, and the implication is, let your light shine before men. Here, it's not you shining light, but it's you seeing light that is the emphasis. He says, verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is also full of light. But when they're bad, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, no part of it will be dark. It will be completely lighted as when a light of a lamp shines on you. What is Jesus saying? 
is he's saying, use your eyes. You've seen the miracles. You've heard my words. You have what you need to believe. There's no need for a huge sign from heaven. There's no need for anything dramatic, definitive, other than what you have already seen. The evidence is here. It is your responsibility to respond to what you see and hear. We live in a day when there is no shortage of those who wish to slander Jesus. <laughs> Just get on the internet. The era of the militant atheist has come upon us. You know, when I was growing up, we had one militant atheist. Her name was Madeline Murray O'Hare. Now, there were a lot of atheists, but there was one who was out there in your face all the time. But now they're endemic and they're aggressive and they're slanderous. And there are plenty of skeptics who will say, there's just not enough evidence to, to believe in God, to believe in this Jesus thing. And there's a lot of superficiality out there. There's a lot of Jesus talk that doesn't really encounter the real Jesus. That's the age we live in. And responding to it is as simple as hearing what Jesus said. Jesus replied, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Approaching Jesus Christ is not looking at a magician's trick. It's not a matter of trying to figure out how he did it or knowing all the answers. I hear the slander of those who don't believe. I hear the words of the skeptics, and I am a reader. And I've said before, I, you know, I read atheist blogs. I read what skeptics say. I read everything that I can find out there on different aspects of, of those who are opposed to Christianity and Jesus Christ. And if you were to say, Jim, can you answer every one of those arguments? I'd say, no, I can't answer hardly any of them. If I were to wax poetic, I would say, I, I have a thousand questions that I cannot answer, 10,000 things I don't understand. But I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able 
to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. You see, we live in a rationalistic age. We live in an age where everything must be defined and understood. But you will never answer every question. You will never fully understand. You will never be able to quantify Jesus Christ any more than they could. Back then, the accusation, the slander was, he's doing it by Satan's power. Today, it's more, ah, it's just all bunk. There's no reality to it. It's fantasy. It's an imaginary friend. Blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus says in Matthew to the disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. It wasn't by persuasion that I came to Jesus Christ. It wasn't by logical argumentation. It was ironically because as a 14-year-old boy, my, I was in the Episcopal Church at the time, my rector, my priest, looked at me out of the blue one day and said, have you ever considered going into the ministry? And I said, no. I was an altar boy. I said, no, that was the last thing on my priority list. But there was something, he planted a seed, and for some crazy reason, I couldn't get it out of my head. And for the next year, that kept coming back to me. I was not a believer. I had no earthly idea of what the gospel was. I was an altar boy in church, but that didn't matter. I didn't know anything. Had never opened a Bible. But one day, it got to a point where I said, God, I don't know why you want me, but I will be a minister, if that's what you want. Well, after that, I said, well, I guess if I'm going to be a minister, I ought to know something about the Bible. Never had opened a Bible in my life. I picked it up. Started at the most logical place, Revelation. <laughs> I didn't understand any of that, except the verse that said, he whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And I didn't much care for that one. Eventually, I found my way to the Gospel of John. That worked better. And then, I was, I, I don't even remember exactly how old I was. I know I was older than 14. It was the summer. I was hot. I'd come inside, sat down in front of the television, turned on the television. This was in the old days when you actually had to physically change channels. Uh, flipped around. There was this guy on who was preaching. His name was Billy Graham.
I guess if I'm going to be a preacher, I ought to see how this is done. And so I watched. And I don't know exactly, you know, see, I wasn't schooled in the, the theology that says you must know the day and the time and the hour that you came to faith. I have no idea. But I know I really liked what he said, and I kept watching Billy Graham every time he came on. And somewhere in there, I came to faith in Christ. You see, it wasn't through logical persuasion. It wasn't through convincing arguments. It was through the word of God. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. Blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. That's what God wants in all of his people. It's easy to come to that point of faith, but then forget that for the rest of our lives, we're also supposed to listen to the word of God and respond to it. But that's my challenge for you as a church and for all of us as individual Christians, may we be blessed in hearing God's word and putting it into practice every day of our lives. May we have eyes that see and ears that hear and hands and feet that do. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We love you. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for all that you've done in all of our lives. I pray if there's somebody here who has never come to faith in Jesus Christ, that you might open their eyes, open their ears, help them to see and hear your word and respond to it. And Father, help all of us through our daily lives to continue that response. And we look forward to the day when we gather in your presence. In Jesus' name.